Welcome to Church Birch and the good, the bad, and the ugly about church, religion, and spirituality with a dash of recovery thrown in. If you've ever had questions about the church, maybe a bit jaded in your attitude toward religion, well, you've come to the right place. Our host, he was an honors philosophy student, ordained a Presbyterian minister, planted three churches, taught at a prestigious university, but now, now he's just an aging curmudgeon who never quits asking the question why. The host of Church Hurts and Dr. John Bash. Discipleship was the trend in evangelical circles when I was in school. Young converts or committed Christians were encouraged to take a mature Christian into discipling them. Would they do it? Many made it a formal process, going through books together or meeting at a certain time with a syllabus of sorts. For others, it was a more informal process, making sure it included regular contact and prayer together. For those in the recovery community, you will know it as being similar to having a sponsor. For those in the business or academic world, it was rather like having a close mentor. I had been fortunate to have some great mentors whose behavior functioned as a discipling relationship, but none would have allowed that label to be put on it. Now that I had arrived at seminary, I figured it was time to make it official. In a new city, a new school, and largely lost, I looked around to see who I could trap into discipling me. To picture what it's like being at a new seminary, just remember the first day of high school or college, if you will. This wasn't a monastery, and no vow of poverty or celibacy was required. I ended up landing upon a hippie-like professor of Christian education who responded by denying my request because of his busyness. With a reverse Tom Sawyer thinking, I shrugged this off and uh, told this professor that I'd love to get off campus, and if he needed help around the house, anything like painting the fence or something, I'd love to help. He laughed, asking me who put me up to this. I didn't get the joke. As it ends up, he had been whining around the office about having to paint the fence the forthcoming Saturday. Fast forward a few days in 1979. The smell of fall in the air with newly colored leaves just beginning to drop. There are two unskilled laborers with paintbrushes working on a yard fence and the laughter began. One might never have guessed these were the seminary types. The seminarian went on to graduate and plant churches. The professor came, became the head of the doctoral program with a long-storied history at the school. Today, they're in front of a microphone on Zoom during the pandemic on OC Talk Radio. Here to discuss education, learning, and growth, we welcome to Church Hurts and Professor Perry Downs. Welcome, Perry. Thank you, Dr. Bash. It's good to be with you. Perry, you've spent your life teaching in seminary, but that is just not a category many of our listeners understand. What's a seminary? Who goes there? Is it something like Hogwarts with robes and everything? 
Not exactly. Uh, it's a graduate, graduate school for people that want to go into Christian ministry, usually pastoral work, sometimes missionaries, sometimes church staff work. And it's a pl- place where people come together to study in preparation for service of the, in the church and service to the church. So, so give me an idea. Um, I would say our, our average listener would know what, and if you go to college, you, you know, you have history, you have business, you have literature, psychology. Do you have fields of study or is it just like one big, long Bible study? Yeah, it's in some ways it is like a one big, long Bible study. A Master of Divinity is traditionally a three-year degree. Most people squeeze it into four or five years. Because you included in the study is coverage of the Old Testament and the New Testament and the intertestamental period as well, what went on between the Testaments. But there's also study of theology, which is basically how do you think about God rooted in, in divine revelation. But there's also psychology, so you can understand people better. And there's uh, educational ministries so that you know how to teach in ways that actually can touch people's lives. Because as we all know, a lot of times, especially in the church, it doesn't touch lives very well. And so we try to look at that. There's also a study of homiletics, how to preach, how to run a church, things like that. And of course, we have to mention apologetics, uh, my second second favorite. But your specialty was Christian education. And explain that particularly in light of the fact that for some people, actually, these days in the postmodern era, in the post-Christian era, they think Christianity and education are almost opposites. I heard a guy say one day um, that he was um, he was more scientific, so he had a hard time believing in God. So yeah. education, Christian education, what's your emphasis compared to the New Testament, Old Testament theology people? Yeah. I, I have had that kind of conversation, too. I talked not too long ago with a professor from Yale uh, College, and uh, she taught uh, science. I don't remember what her special discipline was. But in the midst of the conversation, I asked her, did you, did you have any place for God in her thinking? And she said, no, not really. And she, and she said, um, how, how come you think about God? I said, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, because I think it just takes an incredible amount of faith to think that, you know, the world around us just happened. I, I, I think I see fingerprints of a creator. But anyway, um, my focus was how to teach the faith, the Christian faith, in ways that actually engage people's lives. Um, and that's a really hard uh, question, actually. I did my PhD at New York University in religious education. And I was in class with all stripes of Christians, you know, Catholics, Protestants, the occasional fundamentalist Christian in there. Um, but there were Muslims, there were Jews, uh, different stripes of Roman Catholic. And everybody was asking the same question. How in the world can we teach faith in a way that actually engages people's lives? And so that's, that's pretty much the focus of, of, um, the, uh, of the discipline. I'll just tell you one quick story. When I first started studying Christian education, I was in a Bible college, which is undergrad, where you study Bible and ministry. And I chose to do my major in Christian education because I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to actually want to teach in a seminary. And uh, I'd sit in my classes and listen to the teachers. And I thought, they're teaching the wrong stuff. 
because they focus dominantly on how do you organize a Sunday school, how do you organize youth groups, things like that. And I thought they're asking the wrong question. The, the real question is, how do you grow a Christian? And that's what I was interested in. And how do you help people grow in their faith? Well, well I'll just say one other thing real quickly. Uh, people also um, talk about Christian education as, uh, you know, higher education, especially, but under uh, even elementary schools done from a Christian context, from a Christian framework. And that starts with a Christian worldview and then tries to approach any discipline through that lens, asking how does our understanding of God influence how we look at any particular discipline. I, I introduced you at the outset as kind of hippie-like um, at yeah. the time, and, yeah. and you got to remember when that was. But there was a sense that you were a bit of a rebel mm-hmm. um, in your own way, and yet you talk about going to college. Were you always a goody-two-shoe? I guess probably yes, to tell you the truth. I mean, um, you know, as a as a young teenager, I came to to faith. Faith started shaping my life. I had a lot of questions. I went off to Bible college to. Um, tried to uh, figure out, does it make sense to believe in the Bible or not? And I said, I said, I'll give it a year. And if at the end of the year, I'm not convinced it's actually the word of God, I'll, I'll bag it and get out with my life. And at the end of the first year, I said, I don't think there's any other answer for this book other than it's inspired by God. And then uh, at the end of three years, it was a, just a three-year diploma program. At the end of three years, I was thought about what I learned. And I thought, I've got to give my life to sharing what I've learned because I, to me, it was so important. I just couldn't, I couldn't um, not be involved in ministry. Fast forward a couple of years, my dad had died. I had to, to pull out of school and, and work. And I work interestingly, when you have a three-year diploma from a Bible Institute, you know, where do you work? Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York City, which is part of Yeshiva, Yeshiva University, a major research center. But they wanted untrained technicians, and I fit the bill nicely. <laughs> so my, my friend invited me to, to work there. And then after I got married, we moved to Philadelphia to go to school there. And I worked part-time at University of Pennsylvania in the psych department. And I ended up running the psych labs for the chairman of the psych department. And he offered me a full ride to, to do my PhD in psychology at University of Pennsylvania. And I turned it down. And um, he said to me, do you know what you're turning down? I said, I'm sure I don't. But I said, I have this call to ministry. I just can't deny. And so that, that's what I pursued. And I end up, ended up um, teaching and having my PhD funded by the school I was teaching at. So it was a so nice trade-off. When, when you mentioned Bible college, um, mm-hmm. isn't that part of the problem of people's perception of Christianity not being sophisticated, of kind of going to that time when Christians um, in the conservative Christians opted out of the mainstream educational system and said, we don't trust this because we send our kids to Harvard, Yale, and Princeton if they're lucky enough to get in, and they come back atheists. So they formed these Bible colleges, what, in the 1920s or 30s, and they really became known as being a second level education. It wasn't top-notch education um, when when you went to a Bible college, aren't they partly to blame? Yeah. Oh, I think so. Definitely. Uh, you know, that, that Bible Institute movement, it was, it was protection against quote the world and higher education. And in the 1940s, 
uh, is when what's called evangelicalism emerged. And it was really in protest against that kind of movement. And people such as uh, Carl F. H. Henry and Kenneth Conser uh, and others said, you know what, we can go to Harvard and, and to Yale and to um, UCLA. We can go to the, to the really great universities. And if our faith doesn't stand up against that kind of reasoning and thinking, then our faith isn't worth anything. And so there was a whole movement then to start trying to engage um, the broader world. Um, so your so, I mean, your fellow professors. I mean, these were not Bible college grads um, in terms of where they. You had people from the top universities in the world, and your your doctorate itself is from New York University. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was. Um, uh, I most people would start at university and then finish. Uh, in at seminary, you know, or, or in a divinity school, actually, I did it backwards. I I did undergrad Bible and then did graduate school, uh, an MA and a PhD uh, at, at a major university. So I did it in the opposite direction, and um, it worked well for me. So so let's then move to really the substance here okay. in terms of there's a big difference between education and learning, isn't it? It totally. isn't that kind of really your specialty because there are some very educated people who are uh, just horrifyingly stupid, right? Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to put it gently, I think that's just, they're not, I mean, they're just ignorant. You know, they're so focused in one tight area that they don't have a sense of, broader world and especially how to engage the broader world and uh yeah i worked with a lot of people like that at trinity i think that was one of the things that made me you know maybe a bit of a rebel at the place because i was insisting that we have to have to engage the world as it actually is and have to you know get out of our cocoons and pick our, pick our heads up out of our books i used to have a kind of this image in my mind that uh i'd be at the divinity school where i taught where i met you and to go into the library and see students with their heads buried in books. And what I wanted to do was walk up behind them, grab them by the ears, pull their face up out of the book and say, look around. There's a world out there and you've got to know how to engage that world. You can't just live in the, in the library all the time. You've got to face real world issues. But there is a sense for people and remembering at that stage of life, you're talking about really kid, a lot of kids just getting right out of college. Yeah. Um, they're like you, they feel like they had a call to the ministry and mm-hmm. they're kind of bright eyed and bushy tailed. Um, many of them so eager about how they know kind of already know more about the Bible than their peers. And so they oh, really yeah. want to dig in deep how do you make that distinction between intelligence and spiritual depth and say these don't go hand in hand? You may know the Greek and the Hebrew and be able to parse that verb and what Jesus said, but that's different than living it, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, Christian spirituality uh, generally is expressed in, in three different modes. Um, the, the first is the rational. And Indeed, you know, Jesus talked a lot about truth, you know, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. You shall know the truth. The truth will set you free. Um, You know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus talked a lot about truth. 
And indeed, there's truth to be known. And I think there are people that you know, know that truth exceedingly well. But spirituality is more than that. Uh, there's also uh, the, the, a mystical sense. And, and this gets people, you know, goosebumps and, and gives them, uh, you know, makes them break out in hives sometimes. But when I say mystical, what I mean is actually listening to the Spirit of God and saying that God is alive and at work in the world. And I can, I can hear his voice and I can, I can feel his touch. I want to say that very carefully because there are people that all the time are saying, well, God told me this, God told me that. Yeah, I, I doubt it. Might have been indigestion instead. But I think they're still part of being spiritual. It has this mystical aspect that says you have to listen and, and be aware of God is actually alive in the world today. And we got to pay attention to that. And we need our antenna tuned to hear that. But spirituality is more than rational and mystical. I think there has to be an activist sense. And by that, I mean, you've got to engage the world as it is. And especially try to bring the gospel to bear on social issues, on um, personal life issues. And that you got to make a difference in the world. You know, there are people that, that uh, they love God, love, love to study the Bible and go off to prayer meetings, but never engage their world and scared to death the world. We're called to be a redemptive presence in the world. And, and so I think that is, a, you know, is the ultimate expression of Christian spirituality is when you function redemptively in whatever context you're placed. So just to highlight, you said more than rational, not less than rational. Right. Um, and, and that's the problem, I think, is sometimes we end up fighting with those who want to think that we're less than rational because... As Christians, often we behave less than rationally. <laughs> let, let's let, let's even just ask this, and then you know, there's a way that you applied it in your life. But before that, how fundamentally though do people learn? I mean, I'm convinced it isn't just books. It's just not knowledge and something you can take a test on, is it? I mean, real learning—that's what yeah. you really studied, right? How does somebody really learn? Yeah, talk to me about I, that. Yeah, I got an hour for me to talk about this one. Um, let, me, let me say about there are levels of learning, and I think this kind of will open up the issue for us. The, the, most, the base, most basic level is remembering. You know, I memorize it. I, I read it. I hear the lecture on it. I memorize it. I give it back on a test. Never touches my life, but I can get an A in the course because right. I memorized it. Yeah. But there has to be an affective aspect to, to learning also. And the affective says, I engage with this emotionally, and it's got to be, yeah, I like this stuff. This is good. This is helpful. I like this. But then there's a, a I can, you know, I can say, yeah, that was good. I remember it, and I liked it. I haven't done anything with it. So the third level of learning is, is speculation. When I start thinking about the implications of what I learned, what does this actually mean? Where is the meaning and, and what can I do with it? How should I be different because I've learned this? So you've got remembering and then liking it and then thinking about it. Then the fourth level is um, it's kind of trial. I'm going to actually try this out in my life and see if it works. It's kind of a test period. And some people try it out and they go, yeah, you know what? Didn't work for me. Forget it. Other people will go, yep. This is what I want. And then the, the final level is, is 
uh, adoption, when I adopt it and it, it, it takes hold of me, it becomes part of my life. That's when I can say I really learned when it's, it's controlling my life. Yeah, until you get there, it really isn't learning, is it? No, it's not. Yeah. Let's just, um, you know, we don't have much time um, left, Perry, but there's two ways you, this, you know, your own life, you really applied it. And and I wish we could get into your whole family story. um, But at least tell me why there's a whole lot of kids in the world who have called you father for real daddy. Um, you decided to do something, didn't have to, you know, it wasn't about being a professor. Talk to me about that. When we moved to the Divinity School where you and I were at, it's in the suburbs of Chicago. And it tore me up that there was such pain in the city. And I'm sitting out in a fairly wealthy white suburb doing nothing. And I started saying, how in the world, what can we do to make an impact in the city? And I really did feel called to teaching and being in the Divinity School, but we decided I could take a child. So we started taking foster kids and we, you know, we take one and then another and then another. And, you know, for for foster parents, we were amateurs. We did 30 kids over the years, but they quickly realized that if we got really hard cases, we give them to the Downs family. And uh, I don't know why, but they did. You had, um, you had children, um, Quite often you had to deal with the issue that they were addicted to drugs because they were coming out of the womb with an addicted yeah. parent. Right, right. Um, every race was not an issue with the Downs family. Yeah. All kinds of colors and and disabilities yeah. came to your house and, and when they were just little, when they couldn't even talk to you, right? Right, right. Uh, I remember, you know, several babies that were cocaine babies, they were uh, born addicted to cocaine. And so the first thing they had to do was come out, get off the drugs. You know, it was brutal. Um, our neighbors didn't like what we were doing. They were bothered, but we were integrating the neighborhood. But for us, yeah, I know, by a baby. That was the amazing <laughs> yeah, thing. Integrated by a baby. Oh. By a baby. You know, somebody said to my wife, oh, you're the ones that are tearing down the neighborhood because we had infants or toddlers, you know, that, that weren't white. Still wow. aren't as far as I know. Yeah. It was crazy, but to, you know, when I try to think about, okay, what have I done in my life that actually matters? You know, I've, and I've lectured all over the world and I've, you know, written books and taught countless classes and stuff. But does it, does that really matter? I hope so. But I think so much more is taking a child and, uh, excuse me, giving him a safe home. And let them know that they're loved. You know, I mean, that's that's really that's what really matters. How hard was we, giving them giving them up? I mean, you've huh. loved them in their infancy, and then yeah. you have to give them up to another yeah. family. How hard was that? I always said it's it was no harder than getting your heart ripped out and stomped on. You know, yeah, because uh, it was like a death. And uh, we had a friend who's a psychiatrist. He said you'll do three, and that will be it. That'll be all you can take. Um, well, we did, we did 30, but it was incredibly hard giving them up. Um, but you knew that's what you signed up for. And we were a way station, you know, we adopted two. Um, we adopted one who's profoundly, uh, disabled and she's in a residential facility now and she's 38, I think. And then we adopted uh, child number 30 who was, um, you know, positive cocaine. 
and um, she, uh, we, we took her in. We were in our 50s. Our kids, our biological kids were out of graduate school, you know, with master's degrees. And this is, we adopted a five-year-old. We're going, oh, that was fun. Let's do it again. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then but, it's a, how good things are. You do this and, and you guys loved it. I mean, you were loving, loving, loving parents. Mm-hmm. And then something happened to your wife. Yeah. Talk to me about that. Yeah. She uh, had what was called frontotemporal degeneration. And it's the, the front part of the brain is degenerating. Alzheimer's attacks the back of the brain. This attacks the front and the sides. And uh, it's brutal because uh, decision-making gets hampered. Uh, emotional engagement gets you know limited. And cognitive abilities just decline, decline, decline. And um, so I retired uh, maybe a little bit quicker than I wanted to. But I, I wanted to... I wanted to stay at home and take care of her. <clears throat> you know, I made a covenant and um, I said, I'm going to keep it. And so I said, I, I promised her, I said, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to protect your dignity. So she was always clean. She was always neat. She didn't smell. Um, she was always happy. She didn't, um, she couldn't lost the ability to walk and to talk and to engage. But, um, she smiled at me, you know, and uh, she died the day after our 54th anniversary. Remember, a year or two ago, we were talking, and, and I just asked, how many minutes a day do you get with your wife? Mm-hmm. And it was down to a couple of minutes. Yeah, yeah. And so you were caring for her, um, her primary caregiver, yeah. when you'd get maybe a minute or two, and then at the end, really none but you loved her to the end. And um, I, it's hard for me not to tear up, but I'm going to close um, because you, um, man, um, you taught in an amazing way. Perry, I want to thank you. Today thank you, you um, you've gotten to meet one of my professors from seminary. It was a volatile time in my life. My father had died a year before, And at 22, I felt quite alone in the world. I just left one of the most loving churches I've ever experienced where I'd been the youth director in Key Biscayne, Florida. Chicago was new and cold and gray. It seemed to me what I learned from this professor is not nearly as significant as how I learned from him. I barely have an image in my mind of sitting in his classroom at all. My mental pictures are of that time painting the fence that I mentioned, the numerous evenings with hot dogs and homemade New England relish. I hear the crying babies in the background as we talk on the phone over the years and the alarms then telling him what time it was to go and care for his wife, declining with her illness. More memories come to mind fondly. The way he expressed thanks when I gave him Battle's translation of Calvin's Institutes for Christmas one year. Now turned into well-worn pages. I remember the laughter of his wife as I was welcomed to light up my pipe in the kitchen in an otherwise smoke-free Christian world. On graduation (laughs) day, 
without any family to come proudly to watch me don my cap and robe with the master of divinity stole. I fortunately had new friends from the area who came to take the place of my family and bestow upon me their pride in my achievement. Included in the group were a few very attractive young women, one of whom, unbeknownst to me, would become my wife. As the professors arrived in the splendor of their doctoral regalia, I sought out Professor Downs to introduce him to my small group of friends. He, too, wanted to introduce me to some friends of his. He leaned down and conspiratorially whispered in my ear an amazing question. Do I introduce you as my student or as my teacher? Really? Yeah. Really? So what did I learn? It takes humility to really learn, no matter how educated you are. If I told you the names of some of my other seminary professors, you might be impressed. They wrote more books than Perry. Their legacy may have been have a greater impact upon Christian thought than Dr. Downs will have had. I don't have their phone numbers, but this much I know for sure. It's easier to learn from someone when you have their number because there's a good chance they might have yours too. <laughs> and it's worth a thought for church hurts. And this is John bash. Enjoy God today. Well, that was worth a thought for sure. And brings us to the end of this edition of church hurts. And next week it's rumored. We'll be walking on the edge of controversy, stirring the pot of denial and finding movement of the divine. Our host, Dr. John Bash, is the Shepherd with Standing Stone, a nonprofit ministry committed to caring for pastors and Christian leaders at risk of leaving the ministry prematurely. Come visit us at churchhurtsand.org. Tell us your story while you're there. Until then, remember, Church Hurts isn't the end of the story. Now go into the end. Enjoy God today, won't you?